This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for joining us, listening to our podcast today. Today is going to be part two of our conversation about the Curtis Reeves trial. If you haven't heard part one, I recommend you pop back and check that one out before you listen to our podcast today. It might make a little bit more sense. But uh, in case you don't want to do that and you just want to plow through, I'm going to give you a, a little recap about the main points of the Curtis Reeves case, the shooting of Chad Olson. This shooting took place way back in 2014. It took eight years for this thing to get to trial. There was a self-defense immunity hearing. There were delays from COVID. Uh, finally went to a jury in February of 2022, just a couple of months ago. And this case, you might know it as the popcorn shooting. It took place in a movie theater in a little town called Wesley Chapel, which is north of Tampa, Florida. And in this case, Curtis Reeves and his wife Vivian went to see a showing of Lone Survivor. They're going to be joined shortly by their son. Curtis Reeves, a retired law enforcement officer, had a long career. He'd never been in trouble in his life with the law. Chad Olson, I also want to mention that Curtis Reeves was in his 70s. Chad Olson was a much younger man in his 40s. Uh, he was physically fit. He was there to see the movie with his wife as well. When the theater darkened and the preview started playing, there's always that little message to, to put your cell phone away. Chad Olson didn't regard that message. He had his cell phone out. This shining light. Uh, allegedly, he was texting the babysitter before the film started. Curtis Reeves asked him to put the phone away. He complained about it. Chad Olson gave him a lippy response, didn't comply, and Curtis Reeves ended up going to the theater manager to complain. Came back in, the phone was put away. He said, oh, if I knew you put the phone away, I wouldn't have gone to the manager. Chad Olson didn't like that. He responded in a way that was unkind, and eventually he ended up standing up over his chair, leaning to the aisle behind him where Curtis Reeves was. He was uh, explosive. He was visceral. His wife put her hand on his chest to try to hold him back. There's some contention about whether Olsen threw his cell phone and struck Reeves in the head. Uh, eventually, he grabbed the popcorn out of Reeves' hands and threw it at him. Reeves, a licensed concealed carrier, was able to draw his pistol. He fired one shot that actually struck Olsen in his chest. The bullet went through his Olsen's wife's hand, the hand she was using on his chest to try to restrain him and bring him back. One shot proved fatal, and it was investigated. Ultimately, Curtis Reeves was charged with second-degree murder in this case. You're going to hear from our conversation today that uh, Don West, National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe, and a venerated criminal defense attorney, 
uh, along with Steve Moses, a uh, well-respected firearms instructor and CCW safe contributor, uh, we looked deeply into this case and agreed that it was a close call about whether Curtis Reeves would be convicted or found not guilty. There's a lot of things that contribute to the complexity of this case. Today we're going to continue the conversation we started with you guys a couple weeks ago. We're going to start with a conversation about the credibility of witness testimony. There is some question about whether everyone who testified on behalf of the prosecution were being forthright compared to the statements that they'd made eight years earlier. And we're going to talk a little bit about the challenges of having family members testify on your behalf because they're obviously going to be biased and the jury has to weigh whether what they're saying is credible. And here's one thing I want uh, you guys to think about is there was a moment in this case where Curtis Reeves' wife, Vivian, suggested that they just change seats to get away from this hothead who was yelling at him. And in every case that we look at, almost every case that we look at, there are is a clear opportunity for the defender to leave the situation safely without it building to deadly force. And... Uh, sometimes that can be as simple as listening to our wives or to other people who have cooler heads. In, in the end, there's a sense that Curtis Reeves wanted to win the argument, uh, not understanding that that argument would escalate to violence and that the, the final word would be a round from his pistol. And uh, before we wrap up this conversation, we're going to talk a little bit, even though Reeves was acquitted that's not really a win. We say that you survive a criminal prosecution. You don't win it. And there are numerous consequences that Reeves faced uh, despite being found not guilty. And a good question here. There's been a lot of conversation online, particularly about this is a victory for gun rights. Uh, maybe not the perfect self-defense case to, to rest our hat with on that. We'll talk to Steve about that. And, um, you know, before we wrap up, we'll talk a little bit about some of the evidence and the difficulty with the video evidence in this case uh, and why that wasn't as clear as we might have wanted it to be. So uh, we'll get into it. This is my conversation with Don West, Steve Moses, wrapping up our discussion of the Curtis Reeves case. I wanted to talk a bit more about something you mentioned there, Steve, about how some of the adverse witnesses to the defense uh, seem to change their stories. And what you're referring to is there was a witness or two who, when they first gave statements following the shooting in 2014, were didn't express any sentiment that Reeves was angry or having that impassioned response but by the time they testified at trial they seemed to have changed their story to suggest that he was so so don uh, really the the witnesses who would most speak to reeves being in that state where 
he might be guilty of second degree murder, their credibility was shot right out from underneath them in cross examination on their own statements from years before. Yeah, I think the primary purpose of cross examination is to challenge the testimony by revealing any biases or prejudices, uh, some aspect of this person's life or experience or relationship to the case or to people that would give them uh, an agenda, a perspective, or some reason to shape their testimony in one fashion or another. And then, of course, typical impeachment by inconsistent statement, as opposed to by revealing a bias or prejudice, is that when people have made multiple statements, they are fair game to be challenged by any statement they've made previously, which is inconsistent with the statement that they made in court. Uh, one, and I think what we're seeing here is sort of the progression of some, some witnesses who made earlier statements that were either more favorable to the defense or at least less favorable to the prosecution. And when they were challenged, they, it appeared, I think, and I've heard some commentators say that, that it was obvious they were trying to help the prosecutor, that they seemed to be favoring the state's case, even though earlier statements were made that were much more neutral or even more defense oriented. So they were, their bias was exposed, which certainly hurts anybody's credibility. That's why you really don't want a family member being your only witness when you're in, in trial, because the assumption is they would be biased in your favor. Well, any witness can have a bias depending on how they view the case, how they view the role in it, what they think the outcome should be, that sort of stuff. And if a bias is revealed, they have less credibility overall than if they're perceived as just, you know, saying it like it is, calling balls and strikes. Uh, and then if they are further revealed to have made inconsistent statements, that's huge, huge damage to the overall credibility of the witness. And then a jury, in addition to having a bias revealed, now has inconsistent statements that they have to reconcile. And one of the jury instructions that you talked about early on in, in our conversation today, Sean, is the judge gives the jurors instructions, whether there are inconsistent statements, whether the witness has been impeached and they have the complete discretion to accept some, all or none of a witness's testimony, depending on how credible and reliable they think that that testimony is. I might point out too, that because of the age of this case, remember it started with the incident back in 2014 and the final trial was eight years later in, in 2022, that there had been prior opportunities for most of these witnesses to have given prior statements under oath. They may not have all been recorded or subject to questioning, but some of them were uh, by the other side. So typically the police would respond to a scene and take statements from those that have been identified as witnesses or later for people that have later been revealed to be witnesses. And it's often in a handwritten statement form that at the end of the process, the officer swears them in and they, they swear that it's true. Well, as the case proceeds, in Florida especially, because it's one of the handful of states in the country 
that allows discovery depositions in felony criminal cases. So these witnesses would have had to have sat for a deposition, or at least they would have had to have sat if the lawyers wanted them to, where the lawyers asked questions, the defense asking state witnesses and vice versa with both sides participating. And then of course, if there were ever any prior judicial hearings, like that a would all be around self-defense uh, immunity hearing. Exactly right. Self-defense immunity hearing they had where there would have been 17. Yeah. Evidence offered by these same witnesses subject to cross-examination and all of that stuff would have been available in transcript form, recording form and available to the lawyers in 2022 when they had this trial. So this was well plowed ground, uh, I, I would suggest, and that witnesses that made inconsistent statements should have known it was coming. I mean, it's pretty outrageous in some ways that there would be inconsistent statements. It almost either proves the bias in and of itself or suggests that they weren't very well prepared knowing what was out there and what inevitably uh, was coming. Sure. And, and I've seen this happen before, and I think it happened in this case, that if you've got a state's witness and you expose that bias, not only does that witness have no value for your case anymore, potentially, but they might end up pushing their weight over and benefiting the defense side of things because you're, you're going to give them negative credibility for that, and, and that helps the defense's argument. Well, and the one thing that's consistent throughout the criminal justice system is that the burden of proof rests with the prosecutor. And if they fail, even by a little bit, to convince the jury of every element of the offense, or in this instance, failing to disprove every aspect of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, then the proper lawful verdict is guilty. Even if there's a mountain of evidence, a conflict in the evidence, the if absence guilty, of evidence. You meant to say, yeah. Pardon me? You meant to say not guilty, that they fail to, to prove. If they fail to prove, then the only lawful verdict is not guilty. Exactly. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Now, you said something earlier about how, like, when you measure the bias of a witness, and, and you mentioned specifically family members make difficult witnesses for you as a defendant because they're going to be biased towards you. That very truth is what I think made uh, Curtis's wife Vivian's testimony so powerful because Curtis suggests that something was thrown at him and that Chad was striking him and his own wife who was sitting next to him who's on his side who would like to spend the rest of her life with her husband said that she doesn't remember him being struck by anything she didn't see him being hit by anything but what she did say was that when Olsen stood up and started yelling and being aggressive, she was terrified. And I think in the context that she didn't just blindly say these other things to support her husband's claim of what happened, but that she spoke to the reasonableness that a person in their 70s would have of being terrified by this response, I think that carried a lot of weight. That did for me, if I were on that jury, I would have put an awful lot of weight on that testimony. I think that's well said. And I think that's a very good point that just because you are 
a relative, family member, close friend, neighbor, whatever, that there might be some suspicion of bias doesn't disqualify you in any way from being a witness. It only makes it perhaps in the eyes of the jury a little more suspicious and, and they may be a little skeptical. But exactly for the reasons you're talking about, when she was clear, she was clear. When she was uncertain, she allowed herself to be uncertain and it resonated, I think. And that meant the jury probably had a good feeling about her testimony and they didn't discount what she said that she was confident of because she wasn't sure about some other things, knowing full well that she could have made something up. She and no one could have done anything about it, except she might not have sounded very believable. And I think the jury has a terrific BS detector. You know, I, I think they're all human beings. They live long lives. They deal with people day in, day out, and they have to make those assessments in their daily lives that they do as a juror too. Just who do you believe and why do you believe them? And do you have a good feeling that they're trying to tell you the truth, even if it's not perfect? You know, Sean, Steve, I don't believe there's ahead. any way that she would have been able to see him strike her, which I think she basically said she didn't for the very simple reason that she was seated right next to Reeves at such time, or her husband, that is, that uh, Olsen came up and was behaving in such a, a scary fashion. I would imagine that 100% of her attention was on Olsen and not so much that she was able to also even see her husband at that time. Yeah. Because typically when we're under stress, you know, you kind of get that, I believe it's called tax psyche, you know, or tax psyche, where basically your field of devotion just narrows and becomes very sharp and very much so on what the potential danger is, kind of to the exclusion of everything else. Now, they say, of course, that still is your peripheral vision, which is exactly why you do. It does. And that's why when you're under stress, it's important to scan. But it's very, seems very evident to me that more than likely she came, he came up and she just fixated on him because he was not only a threat right then to her husband, he was potentially a threat to her too. Sure. And in addition, the theater lights were off and they actually had an expert testify to this or they tried to get an expert to testify to this where the screen was backlighting him. So he would have been just a, a massive silhouette to her and, and a lot of that detail would have been lost. But Steve, there's something you said earlier I wanted to pick up on, and, and it has to do with another thing that uh, Vivian testified to. And she said that immediately after the the notice that you should turn your cell phones off and the, the first exchange before Reeves said, I'm going to go talk to the manager, she suggested, why don't we just change seats? And you talked about the all the opportunities for this not to happen, isn't that the most obvious one? Absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 definitely important to listen to your wife. And if your wife sometimes <laughs> is kind of getting those little hinky feelings that something's up, she may be more dialed in to what a potential threat might be than you are. And guys, guys we tend to sometimes be, and sometimes it's true for women, be somewhat dismissive. But if someone in your family says, hey, I want to move, Let's just move. I, I I think it's well worth, you know, following that that recommendation unless there's just some other reason that you can't. And I believe that they decided, I'm not sure who made the decision, 
to remain in place because they'd made prior arrangements to meet their son in the movie. And I believe they wanted him to know roughly where their location was. Yeah. And and I just want to add on to that. Listen to your wife thing for all the, the fellas that are out there, because we've encountered this on more than one occasion. And I, I want to bring up the Charles Dorsey case. And this is the case where the next door neighbor's drunk house guest came around uh, after midnight trying to get in what he thought was his buddy's house. He just made a mistake because the houses looked very similar and shared a driveway. And there's a ring doorbell that recorded the audio of all these interactions. And you hear at one point uh, Chuck's wife, Dorsey's wife, say, don't go out there. I think Mr. Dorsey was tempted at a break in the conflict to go out and investigate. And had that shooting occurred on the outside of the threshold of his door and not after the stranger had broken in through the door, uh, it would be a whole different assessment. He was, of course, never charged in that, and it was a justifiable shooting, I think because he listened to his wife. And we talked about the Melinda Herman case, where her instinct was not to go charge and meet the intruder. She tried to hide from him, and when... He had crossed a number of thresholds. She she almost retreated too far, in fact, uh, to, to her own detriment. But so far that it was never... She got uh, praised by the local police for her bravery and not, not any suspicion of that. Don, you and I talked about a case out of Cincinnati, Ohio, where a mother of several children was at home and her estranged... Uh, husband who she had a restraining order against came over and was trying to beat down the door and yelling through the windows and she waited for him to actually yank the air conditioner out of the the you know the indoor outdoor window air conditioner out of its socket yeah and climbed and as he was climbing through she shot him and and she'd waited until he crossed that threshold where it now was imminent and and she had run out of options so so a lot of the female armed defenders we have uh, tend to exercise a little bit more restraint or take that opportunity to avoid the situation. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be sexist or gender specific really because anyone can be this way, but it's a funny trend that we see, right, Don? Yeah. And I, and I think that's, it's especially interesting too uh, in this context is um, Curtis Reeves' background, uh, the idea that he's been in charge for a long, long time. He's used to having what he says respected and obeyed. And in some ways, um, he, I have to think he wanted to win this interaction. He wanted Chad Olson to put his damn phone away and probably apologize for it he was smart enough and careful enough to go to the manager and but not smart enough or careful enough to move i i don't buy that story a hundred percent it's a pretty good explanation but it's not sufficient that it's they could excuse. not have otherwise communicated with with their son if they moved a couple of rows away i, I think psychologically he still wanted to win that interaction in a respectful lawful way but uh, his wife had a much better sense of this, probably, and not nearly as much interest in asserting themselves 
against this bully, against this irrational, against this volatile guy. And I, and I wonder if some of the, if that dynamic played a part in it. And that's why maybe another person's perspective uh, that's watching this thing unfold is something that really should be considered and respected, regardless of whether it's a spouse or a child or someone else that's not actively engaged in it and has no stake, no stake in the pride or the ego or really the outcome other than being safe. Yeah. You know, and to jump onto that in terms of winning, uh, I believe that he did say before the manager came, oh, if I knew you were going to put away your cell phone, I wouldn't have contacted the manager. So had he just perhaps just kept his mouth shut, you know, there may, or may have never been a, a, a verbal confrontation between the two afterwards. Yeah, it's so easy for us to second guess, and that's what's fun, but and also hopefully a little bit useful. And we don't know, but that's exactly right, Steve. It was almost like he was making his point that made his point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you know, we had that conversation with uh, Gary Eastridge, who's the first response critical response coordinator for CCW Safe, former law enforcement, right, a homicide detective, and uh, and, and still gets involved. In those things and and he said this the whole business of law enforcement is second guessing and if you shoot somebody there are going to be a host of people who second guess your actions uh, it, it might be us on a podcast but better us than uh than you know the prosecutor or a, or a jury frankly right and so it's going to be second guessed and in this case uh, curtis reeves admitted during his own testimony that he spent the last eight years second guessing everything that he did that day. So I don't think we're being unreasonable in, in our, our second guessing of his actions, but you know, that, that speaks to your point. The only person who was there was him. And the closest thing to that was his wife and, and every, even the jury who uh, wasn't there uh, was, was left with everyone's word to decide. Yeah. And Not here's another example of a situation that maybe 99 times out of a hundred just gets resolved and people go about their business and they watch the movie or, or what have you. But every once in a while, the lid comes off and something tragic like this happens. And to the extent that our listeners take value, that is, if you see it coming, if you get any sense that it could go like that, uh, get away. Get away and put yourself in a safe position, de-escalate by removing yourself from the situation and then... Uh, and then it's okay, then it's fixed. And then you don't have to worry about whether you're dealing with somebody who's unhinged or crazy or reacting to you for something that happened to them the night before. You can't control how somebody else responds to you as much as you might hope you can and as much as you may think you can. We see that in these road rage cases all the time where each person's assuming the other person will act in a proportionate, reasonable way as this thing goes on. And we know how many times a gun comes out, somebody gets shot, somebody gets pushed off the road, and pretty soon uh, an interaction that could have uh, been ignored or diffused becomes uh, a tragedy. Well, and let's talk about the consequences of Curtis Reeves winning that argument. Right. If it was uh, if there was any pride in, in winning the argument before he had any real notion that it would become violent. Right. Before he could have predicted Chad Olson's 
really excessive response to his request to put the phone away. Um, one, he didn't get to see the movie. And neither did anyone else in the auditorium that day. They all had to give statements. They all had to be subpoenaed for this thing. And then uh, he was charged with murder. And and the rest of his life, which are his retirement years, uh, are now uh, shrouded in uncertainty. And he lives with the specter of going to prison for the rest of his life essentially widowing his wife while he rots in a jail cell hangs there and then this thing drags on for uh eight years it's it's three and a half years before he can even get to his self-defense immunity hearing i think covid didn't he didn't get out of jail right away either the the first judge assigned to the case denied bail and uh he spent i don't know how long it was in jail but his lawyers took an appeal of the bail issue and wound up getting bail as a result of an appellate court action. So that had to have taken, I'm guessing, without knowing more weeks anyway, and you would think perhaps more. And then when he gets bail, he has an ACO monitor, right, Sean? So he's he's yeah. got uh, some sort of community supervision, which uh, GPS based, no doubt, which means that even though he was free in that sense, it wasn't like he could go get on a cruise ship out of Tampa Bay and go over to Cancun for a weekend or any of that stuff. He is within clear uh, geographical confines of the court. He's monitored. He may be checking in with people. He did have the monetary bail and he's paying lawyers. He's paying right. A lot of lawyers, a lot of money uh, over a long period of time uh, to get to to minimize his chance of spending the rest of his life in prison. No guarantee ever. And he never knew until the moment the jury returned their verdict, which way it was going to go. Well, but we can we can talk a little bit about what that eight years must have been like, because we know there was an immunity hearing. We know there was discovery. And we know that entire process uh, before he finally got his, you know, so-called day in court was, was eight years. Well, and we know he did an interview with the Tampa Bay Times, I think, after the acquittal. And so did his wife. And his wife was talking about how, you know, in the last couple of years after the immunity hearing failed for him. And they're going through COVID and they're waiting for trial that he started making sure she understood everything about how the house worked and, and how to do He was preparing her to live without him because he knew that was a very real possibility. And when you say Don, right up to the last minute, while they were waiting for the jury to deliberate, uh, he took his wedding ring off and gave it to his wife so that she'd have it uh, thinking that he was probably more likely than not to, to leave her that day uh, in shackles to go spend the rest of his life in prison. That, I mean, that's, that's that, I mean, if you want to feel how visceral that is to decide now it's time for me to take my wedding ring off and give it to my wife because I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison is a tough moment and, and a nightmare even if you are acquitted afterward. We talked one time uh, about how you don't, you don't win a criminal prosecution, you survive it. And Curtis Reeves, I think, survived 
an improbable acquittal, you know, and until I really looked into some of the nuance of the testimony and, and a couple of things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about how bad the, the police investigation was and how they mishandled evidence in this case and how we couldn't have known how poor some of the state witnesses would have been. We couldn't have known how strong Reeves own testimony would have been and the testimony of his wife. Um, you know, I think it was a real close call. And if, and if Reeves hadn't been such a, a long time law enforcement officer who had demonstrated a very mild demeanor, if the state hadn't overcharged it, uh, if, if Chad Olson wasn't so explosive and unreasonable in his response, I mean, we're, we're talking about razor thin nuances here that I think ultimately the jury just decided he wasn't a bad enough guy to send to prison for this. But, but Steve, um, this is not a, uh, this is not a uh, Second Amendment rights celebration here, right? This is this is not a clean, shiny example of of self defense here, is it? Uh, no, it's not. And uh, once again, I've seen on uh, Facebook and some other media's uh, people celebrating this acquittal and making statements. Well, you just can't go around uh, beating up old people now. So you know, this is a win for you know uh, people that uh, conceal carry and are you know second amendment advocates and it's really it's it's really not uh it's a very unfortunate uh circumstances and uh, of course there's more victims you know really than uh reeves and his family and that's going to be the family of the uh, of the Olsons, you know by virtue of the actions that Olson took uh basically that you know his wife is now a widow and I believe that uh, he was texting a babysitter who was taking care of their daughter. So now that uh, young lady, you know, she doesn't have a father. And so it's a real tragedy on multiple counts, in my opinion. So many things that could have been done slightly differently that could have changed the jury's perception of this case, could have changed the jury's perception of, of the defendant, Curtis Reeves may have modulated Olson a little bit, may have emphasized some parts of the evidence more. Uh, the prosecutors could have taken a different tact. Um, there's so many, we think though, we think that, as you said, uh, Sean, you survive a criminal prosecution. Uh, you don't really win it. And once you're involved, you lose control over it and you're subject to the lawyers that you pick, you're subject to the prosecutors that are assigned, you're subject to the judge that's assigned to the case. And if everybody does their job well and the evidence is presented fairly and the arguments are good and the jury instructions are correct and the jurors do a good job of parsing out the evidence and resolving the conflicts of the evidence and arriving at the true evidence, applying it to a proper explanation of the law, then you've got a, a better than average chance of getting a proper verdict. But if any of that stuff goes wrong, the verdict could be consistent with the juror's view of stuff, but maybe their view was skewed or maybe they were 
asked to consider something they shouldn't have been considered. If Curtis Reeves gets convicted because the prosecutors made a mistake or his lawyers made a mistake or the judge made a mistake, he gets to appeal, but he spends the next couple of years in prison while that appeal takes place. He doesn't get out on bond while that appeal takes place, I don't think. And then two years down the road, if he's successful, he gets a new trial and gets to start over again. Uh, fortunately for him, uh, the jury uh, found in his favor or they found against the prosecution uh, more likely, and he doesn't have to go through all of that process. But uh, there's no happy ending. I guess maybe that's what you're saying, Sean. Even an acquittal is not really a happy ending other than the fact that you're going home instead of going to prison. It, it only, only compared to the alternative, which wouldn't exist if you had happened to be able to preclude the shooting in the first place to use one of tom given's words there you know this is a case where uh, as a consultant if a lawyer were to bring me this case and these facts i'm going to say technically it's not a justified shooting that reeves overreacted based upon the all the evidence but as a self-defense advocate and as a passionate advocate for defendants especially defendants in self-defense cases the whole strength of this argument to me the whole play was uh, that curtis reeves is a reasonably likable character chad olson displayed uh, uh unbecoming behavior and is a unlikable character and that you really leverage into the disparity of force that the uh you know reeves old age and olson's relative fitness to get a compassion vote where we're basically asking a jury in this to be so angry at olson for acting unreasonable and putting a guy who had been a law-abiding citizen and never got in trouble for 71 years in the situation where he would make that mistake if indeed it was a mistake. That's what we bet the whole thing on. Uh, and I think that's kind of how it turned out. But that's a that's a that's a scary bet to make, right? Yeah, that's not one that I would that I would choose because I agree with you. I think it could have gone either way. And I think the legal commentators uh, thought that same, that those that were watching the trial in real time and talking about it were very capable of pointing out how things might have been done differently or better or the things that were done well and uh, criticizing the process as one does as a commentator. But I have to think that many of them were surprised at the verdict. And I have to, uh, I have to think, Sean, that you make maybe the best point of all. And the jury as human beings and peers look at these very difficult, challenging, tragic scenarios and and even if they don't like the verdict they want it to make sense and under these circumstances uh, for the reasons that you that you articulated it made sense to them steve you know and i'll admit i was one of those commentators that leading up to it thought it was going to be a easy uh guilty verdict and it wasn't until i went through the day by day the stuff 
the work that Andrew Branca did in dissecting it and the stuff that some of the press did who did a pretty good day-by-day analysis of the testimony that I thought, okay, there's some real room here. And now that I know more of the facts, that changes my opinion. And, and, and Steve, were you surprised by the verdict and, and did going through all the testimony and the evidence uh, affect your opinion of the case? Well, I'm surprised by the verdict, but as I was uh, reading Andrew's uh, narration of what was going on, which was outstanding, if you ask me, and his bringing, uh, you know, uh, into view some of the errors that the state made in terms of uh, presenting the case uh, in many ways. I think, you know, several of the witnesses, uh, I think one of the lead detectives mishandled some of the evidence, uh, I believe that that kind of called into question, you know, basically everything that he had testified to, uh, the fact that in some instances, uh, I believe Andrew said that the uh, the prosecutor or someone's on the prosecutor's team was actually unlikable. You know, all of these things, I'm like going, okay, all these things factor in in order to, you know, come up with a final verdict. And so I look at this case and then I think going forward, wow, if I'm in a case like this, am I going to need the state to make a bunch of fumbles and do all this other stuff or, you know, the investigation to be done poorly in order to, you know, convince a jury of my peers that I'm not guilty. And to me, that's kind of, that's kind of frightening. Uh, looking at it at the face from the very beginning, uh, I, I'm a little bit surprised that it turned out this way, but after reading kind of what uh, Andrew wrote and everything, uh, that seemed to make more sense to me. Don, is there anything else you really wanted to talk about? in this conversation on this. I want to talk a little bit about the police handling of some of the evidence. And the reason I want to talk about it is because the defense lawyers talked a lot about it. So without trying to second guess them, accepting the fact that they spent a lot of time pointing it out and a lot of time talking about it in the closing arguments, They must have thought it was important, important to the case that somehow it helped them to point that out to the jury. Now, of course, even those that were watching the trial minute by minute were not looking at the jurors. The jurors did not show up on the screen. You didn't see their body language. You didn't see their facial expressions. You didn't see in any visceral sense what they may be responding to along the way. And as a trial lawyer, that's important. It's important to watch how the jury receives evidence, your sense of how they are accepting or rejecting testimony along the way. And and, and the defense lawyers are experienced. And my sense of it is they did that for a reason, a reason they thought must have helped their case. And the way it would have helped their case, I think, if you try to distill it to the real basics is that because certain evidence was mishandled, it failed to preserve evidence that would have been helpful to Curtis Reeves. Though pointing out, for example, that the phone, Chad Olson's phone was found on the floor of the theater at Curtis Reeves' feet becomes pretty important on the issue of whether Chad Olson hit him, threw the phone at him. Now he could have dropped it, There could have been other explanations, but it was consistent with what Reeves had said 
about being struck with something. So I don't think that the phone itself was handled properly. I don't think the person who retrieved the phone was wearing gloves. I think there was no way to truly do a forensic examination of the exterior of the phone to see, for example, if Curtis Reeves' DNA might have been on the phone. If Curtis Reeves' DNA were on the phone, that kind of proves the point, doesn't it? That he was struck with the phone and it makes perfect sense and it sort of puts a bow on that aspect of the case. Without having that evidence to even consider, the argument would be that the police failure to do everything they could have done in a capable, competent way may have prejudiced Curtis Reeves in his own case. And he should get the benefit of the doubt, not be, uh, not in, in some ways, the absence of that evidence be held against him. That's just something that doesn't, he didn't have to help him, but he shouldn't be, it shouldn't be assumed that it's somehow against him. And, and then there was sort of some head shaking miscues of evidence being held out of the normal tradition of uh, marking it, bagging it, and putting it in evidence. Some of it was held personally for a while. And stuff that just raised eyebrows about the overall handling, especially of the evidence. And when you get to the point that the jury is being asked to conclude that the prosecution has proven its case beyond a reasonable doubt, and you have clear, articulable points to make where there could have been reliable, competent, admissible evidence favorable, but because of government's involvement, failing to properly preserve it and make it available for the jury, that the jury's not getting the whole picture. And the last person that should be denied the benefit is the, the accused. So I know that's kind of a long, somewhat rambling way of understanding why it must have been important to the, to the defense to point that stuff out because they spent a lot of time on it. Uh, whereas the police handling of the evidence itself doesn't really relate to the elements of self-defense that the prosecution would have had to have disproven, if you will. But in any event, I'm not gonna second guess the lawyers because what they did obviously was powerful and it was effective because at the end of the day, the jury uh, rendered their not guilty verdict. Yeah, and Steve, like you were saying that to put your, when you're making your self-defense decisions, to you don't think about whether or not a piece of evidence is going to be mishandled that would otherwise perhaps exonerate you or, or prove you justified right that's not that's not in your mind you, you, you don't think you don't think am i going to have to decide if i can afford a video forensic expert to look at the grainy uh black and white video that doesn't even show the guy who's attacking me don that's one thing i wanted to bring up since we're, we're wrapping up and talking about evidence here you know we've, we've seen a lot of you know these days if you're in a public place you're probably on camera somewhere right and so many of these things happen and we have video to to look at but the video is never great and it never shows the action from the point of view of the defender right and it's not always of all the crucial time moments that play a part of it and sometimes some of the critical action is not even on frame in this particular case the camera that captured the shooting was motion activated right 
and, and so it only come on when things had started already. Plus, the theater's dark, so it's not great. And the frame of it is, you can see Curtis Reeves, but you can't really see uh, Chad Olsen. And so all you can see is like Reeves responding to Olsen, and then the hand of the popcorn fly, and, and you don't even... To talk about frame rates on video, I don't, you don't even see the shot. Like, they don't really see a muzzle flash of the shot that lit up the whole theater, other witnesses said. So, uh, the video is not the perfect eyewitness that you think it is. And sometimes video that you think might exonerate you might not show enough of the story to prove the point. Got to put the evidence in its proper perspective. And the most compelling evidence, if you ask anyone, would be a video of what happened. But we know from our own experience, and this is a perfect example, that it's not necessarily complete. It's not necessarily from different angles. And that sometimes it's even misleading because of the things that you're talking about, Sean, that it may be motion activated or the it may be so grainy that you're seeing things that aren't really there. That that was some some part of the Rittenhouse trial, was it not? At the very end of that, there was some very grainy video that was magnified some so many fold where you were seeing things that weren't necessarily there. And that became a highly controverted piece of evidence in the case and um, potentially prejudicial and misleading. And uh, it was a struggle for the judge to decide whether the probative value of what little probative value there was, was um, outweighed by the prejudice and whether it should even be admitted at all. And, and yes, this, this sort of thing that you're talking about is not uncommon and often results in expert testimony to explain the significance of the evidence that you would think would be self-explanatory. It, it's pretty wild in that sense. Uh, an interesting point, I thought, since we're talking about, at least tangentially, experts, the expert for the prosecutor on use of force in the Draca case was a defense witness in this case. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was really kind of an interesting turnabout that the, the fellow that testified on behalf of the state was actually a defense witness. There was a criminologist uh, that testified in this case. We already talked about the, the expert about aging. And uh, you would think that you could take a look at a 15-second video and make your decision. But I guess that's why an event that takes 10 seconds to unfold can take 10 weeks to try. Sure. And how many times did they watch that video? Yeah, and you talk about experts. They had one expert. They kind of fought for a good portion of a day over whether to allow a demonstrative video to illustrate the the backlighting phenomenon. Like, what can a person see when they're in the dark and there's a bright source of light behind them? Attesting to, you know, what what visually did Reeves really have to make this threat assessment with and in the end some of this stuff after uh, hours of argument not in front of the jury the jury was out during that time uh, doesn't get in and, and so so a huge amount of money probably spent on that expert uh, spent on the demonstrative aid that that may or may not end up helping you at trial and you have to do it all if you're uh, representing an individual facing the rest of their life in prison, high stakes case. You've got to you've got to take a, a run at it. You've got to do it all. And unfortunately, 
uh, it can be subject to financial wherewithal. How much money do you have to spend? Now there's a safety net in the criminal justice system. The public defender is appointed to people uh, facing criminal charges and they will provide lawyers and have some funds for experts and such. But if you're going to be as thorough as these lawyers needed to be to talk to as many experts, and no doubt there were other experts that they may have consulted with that never wound up in, in court. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'm guessing, on the forensic side of stuff, because I heard one of the lawyers talking about the case may have cost a million dollars to defend. And uh, that doesn't surprise me. It went on for eight years. There were multiple proceedings, finally a full-blown jury trial. Uh, a couple of lawyers, at least most serious cases, will have a team. Uh, the team could consist of a couple of lawyers, but there may be investigators, forensic consultants, maybe uh, litigation consultants, jury consultants. Uh, it, it's what you see in court at that moment is just the very tip of what it takes to prepare a case. And, and it can take years in the making. We, we've talked about that before. It's highly unusual to get to trial in less than a year on a, a serious case. And this one was eight years in the making. Hey, Sean, uh, yeah, one thing I might add is that it's, it's possible that a trained concealed carrier in a like situation could have avoided uh, shooting him. Or if it turned out that the attacker was truly intent on, uh, you know, injuring or killing that concealed carrier, that they wouldn't take the gun away from him. So what happened then is what we saw was we saw, you know, uh, Olson come over there and uh, Reeves thought he'd been punched. But now we've talked before about basically being punched in the face or something like that is not necessarily cause for shooting another person. You know, you have to have a reasonable, you know, belief that that person is posing a, you know, a lethal threat to you at that particular time. Uh, so actually what we saw was we saw Reeves have to take that firearm and literally extend it almost to arm's length below the eye line. And that's when he shot Olson. Now that in and of itself is somewhat risky because had that shot not taken Olson down immediately, it's possible that Olson would have taken that gun away from him and killed him with that gun. And so, you know, we had a great podcast with Craig Douglas. Uh, he teaches, you know, the, the principles of an entangled gunfight, how to protect yourself from being knocked down or knocked out by basically forming uh, basically a, a helmet with your arms and hands over your head. And also why the ability to be able to shoot a gun from retention is important because basically you don't want that other person to take that away from you. So again, just second and third guessing this, uh, had he, you know, was confident in his ability to, you know, withstand that. He didn't feel immediate pressure. He was able to draw that handgun to retention and even display it as opposed to using it. Uh, this whole, this whole, you know, tragedy may have never occurred. So I always kind of throw this out, not so much as, well, Reeves should have known that or everybody should know that. But these are things that uh, this training and knowledge is out there available. And I really would, you know, encourage, uh, you know, listeners, concealed carriers 
uh, to, you know, avail themselves of that knowledge because as we, you know, as we saw, even with that not guilty uh, verdict, uh, Reeves' life was probably hell for at least eight years. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. You may have heard Steve mention our conversation with Craig Douglas a couple minutes back. That's the next podcast in my buffer to edit. You'll hear that soon. Until then, be smart, stay safe, take care. By Menon.